it is good to be with you this morning. And as I was thinking about it being Mother's Day, um, I was thinking about how, yeah, it's kind of May marks Mother's Day. You know, we've got all these different holidays for the different months, and it's kind of Mother's Day for May. And yet, throughout Christian history, May was always marked by a different day, and actually a more important day. Uh, and it was marked by the ascension, the celebration of, of Jesus' return to heaven. And the reason we can say it's a more important day is not to denigrate our mothers, but to say that actually it's the Christian story that tells us to honor our mothers in the first place. That's why we do it. We don't do it because the government tells us to or because the flower shops need our money, which they get a lot of this day. But it's, it's the Christian story. And it doesn't stop at Easter. And oftentimes, we stop it at Easter. And it, it continues. And, and the ascension is, is a neglected part sometimes of our Christian worship. So today, I I wanted to take us to a passage in Philippians. It's Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 to 21. And it's a passage that inadvertently talks about the ascended Jesus and how how it's his ascension that enables us to live the behaviors of heaven here and now. So I'll read these words to us from Philippians 3. He says, join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eye on those who live as we do. For as I've often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. And we read these words, and they're coming from Paul in prison to the Philippians. He's, he's likely imprisoned in Rome at the writing of this letter. And the Philippians, they're not just Paul's converts. They're his dear friends. And you guys are, I know you've been in a series on Galatians, but this is a different dynamic because Paul, he's not here trying to correct a misunderstanding of the gospel. He's, he's trying to communicate encouragement to people of how to stand strong in the truth that they know, how to live the behaviors here and now. So it's in this vein, he encourages them and he says, join together in following my example. And as I read those words this week, I I wondered to myself if Paul would have maybe used some different words if he were writing, say, to Unity Baptist, maybe in the year 2020, because we have a really tainted concept of followership. Social media has totally messed us up because we we can follow anyone with a click. We see their pictures. We see what they ate for breakfast. We hear all the things they hate. We can track their stats, their achievements. And it used to be, I'm young enough to remember, old enough to remember, young, old. It used to be that, that you know, you had to do a lot of work to follow like that. I remember walking down to the corner store 
and thumbing through the magazines, finding the one, buying it, walking home, cutting out the pictures, gluing them on my physical wall to show who I was following. And in case you're curious, I was following the shortest players in the NBA in the 1990s. So Spud Webb, because he was the dunk contest winner of five foot six and Muggsy Bogues, he was five three, same height as me. And if those people could do it, I was like, I'm following them. But we follow church leaders too. You know, I've got a friend and he reads everything by Francis Chan, watches his podcast. I've got a, uh, my sister-in-law, she's a Beth Moore fan and, and she does all of her Bible studies and tries to put them into practice. But even that type of followership is, is at best observing from an impersonal distance. It's not what Paul's talking about. He's saying, imitate, literally, do as I did, follow my personal example, personal. And that's the only type of discipleship Paul knew from the Jewish world. It was a come follow me, go where I go, talk how I talk. Every aspect of it, it was like a, a game of monkey see, monkey do, a literal imitation of a person that you were with. And in our lives, that's not necessarily practical. You know, we can't quit our jobs and follow people around. It doesn't work that way. We have to settle for podcasts and whatnot. But the challenge of that kind of distant followership is we simply hear what they say. We don't, we don't get to experience the proof in the pudding, the lived out message in their life. And today, you know, we're so obsessed with gurus, the smartest of the smartest. We like to, to listen to the best communicators or we can take classes from great artists or do all of this stuff via technology. And I can remember years ago, taking a youth ministry class where it was centered on listening to the youth ministry gurus. And the one youth ministry guy, he said, here's all the top 10 tips and tricks on how to effectively use social media to shape teenagers. We're taking notes. And then the next guru says, here's all the reasons not to use social media to shape teenagers. And we're taking notes and saying, wait a second, who do we follow? <laughs> how does, we don't get to see their teens. We don't get to experience 10 years from now the trajectory that their lives have taken. Paul's saying personal embodied imitation really matters because the Christian life isn't about information. It's about a trajectory. We get that from verse 17. He says, keep your eye on those who live as we do. That word live, it actually means walk. That's an Old Testament word. Enoch walked with God. Noah walked with God. Abraham walked with God. Blessed is the one who does not walk. It's a, it's a direction that your life is headed. Relational obedience that's taking you somewhere. You know, the early church, they. They called themselves the way 
And they're, they're referring to the way of the cross, actually. This, this passage references, because he says, people are walking actually the opposite way of the cross. We're walking in a relational direction. And Paul is saying, he says, I'm in prison. Just as you have us as a model, keep your eye on physical people right there that you can do life with so you can watch closely how they walk. And I remember at that same time as, as my husband, Jordan, and I, we were, we were just little babies starting out. We didn't know how to do ministry and, and we're learning all these ideas. And, and there was this professor at our school who had white hair. His wife was gray haired and they were old and they had no tips and tricks for us on anything. And yet he was so full of the joy of the Lord that we said, I think we should spend time with these people. And so we asked them and we said, could you spend some time with us? We don't know anything. Teach us. And I, I, I love thinking back on those times because sometimes we can get the idea of mentorship all messed up. We think it's, it's this system or it looks this certain way. And all these people did is they had us in their home. They fed us. And then we played games. It's very spiritual. And I, I was thinking back on it and I don't remember who won the games, but I remember who lost because it was Myrna. She always lost. And, and she had this phrase, she would say, somebody has to lose, might as well be me. And she said it so sweetly. And I, unfortunately, we had to move away before that characteristic of Myrna was able to fully imitate itself in my life, I must admit. But we, we spent time with them. And we, we didn't get all the tips and tricks. We got the proof in the pudding. And as we, when we came to Red Deer and we started out our ministry, it wasn't all the information that shaped us. It was we followed the leader. That's what we did. And Paul isn't, he's not saying you shouldn't read or listen to him, smart people. He's saying you need physical examples to spend time with. It really matters. It's more important than being fit or looking good or all the other things we obsess about today. And he says it matters so much because, verse 18, he says, because many live, many walk as enemies of the cross. Keyword, many. It's important to note here, he's not saying many people think the wrong things or many people say the wrong things. They walk the wrong way. It's, it's not a problem of false teaching. It's false practice. And scholars, if you read the commentaries on this passage, they're, they're not quite, quite sure who Paul's referring to, but what's obvious is it's spiritual people who talk spiritual things, churchy things, and yet their trajectory is winding up in destruction. How are they walking? Verse 19, Paul says, their God is their stomach. He borrows this phrase from Greek literature. It basically means walking in the way of our desires, our urges. The stomach was seen in the ancient world as the center for desire. <clears throat> so he's not really talking about food. 1 Corinthians 6, 
Paul references this same concept and he, he uses the popular mantra of the day to speak against this concept. He says there, he says, you say food for the stomach, the stomach for food. By which they mean, I can follow my sexual hungers any way I want. You can't blame me for that. You can't judge me. It's natural. I'm just, just following my urges. Giving my stomach what it wants. And we don't use the word stomach. It sounds kind of strange to us. We use the word heart. And we've got our own mantras today. Mantras we say like, love is love. Or how can love be wrong? And it, it sounds like irrefutable. Like something I might say to my daughter, I have a daughter and she loves a particular type of apple. And if I, if I ever am on my way out to the store, she'll say to me, don't forget the pink lady apples, mom. But if I go to the store and they don't have pink ladies, I might get gala or if I really want to spend the money, I might get honey crisp. And I come home and I'll, I say to her, I say, sorry, they were out of pink ladies, but apples are apples. It's all basically the same. They're, they're equally good. We say apples are apples. Love is love. But when we say that phrase, what we're meaning is, is that sex is love. And any way I want it, it's equally good. problem. The problem is that Jesus has a different mantra about love. Because in John 15, he says these words, he says, greater love has no one than this. In other words, it's not equally good. This is the greatest. Greater love has no one than this. Then he laid down his life for his friends. He says that as a, as a 30-year-old virgin who says, love isn't about following our desires and being true to ourselves, our urges. It's about sacrifice. Laying down my rights for others. It's, it's to walk the way of the cross. And all other forms of sexual expression, and there are many to choose from, they might fulfill our hungers, but they're, but they're not equally love, including, for that matter, a husband and wife. If it's about getting what I want, feeding my stomach, it's not love. And yet that's, that's the heartbeat of our culture, isn't it? Getting what I want. I can have sex how I want, spend my money how I want, spend my time how I want, me time. You know, that's the big thing. I just started at a gym this last bit and the rhetoric everywhere is it's, it's what you want. It's all for you. It's, this is your time. We hear this everywhere we go. And I wonder if this is why so many of us as Christians deeply struggle with accountability and mentorship and submitting ourselves to other people because we think, who are you? To say, I can't do what I want. Don't you know, I'm, 
I'm following my stomach. Serving my God. Paul says, many walk this way. Is to be an enemy of the cross. But as he goes on, he doesn't say to point fingers at them or judge them or criticize them. He weeps over them. Their trajectory is destruction. He just says, he says, just don't walk their way. We can't, he says, because our citizenship, verse 20, our citizenship's in heaven. Our Bibles, they soften it often. It says citizenship. It actually means commonwealth. Not a very popular term these days. Think of colonizing and taking over people's lands and asserting our control. But Paul is actually trying to bring out the concept of ownership, allegiance. He's saying, we can't walk that way because we don't belong to ourselves. Our citizenship is in heaven, our commonwealth. And this is something that the people of Philippi would have understood because they were a, a Roman colony. Years earlier, Caesar Augustus had come and he had conquered Brutus in the area of Philippi. He'd won the peace of Rome. And so he left his military there and he granted many people in the region citizenship. And in the ancient world, citizenship defined your behaviors, defined your ethics, your laws, your culture, your language, your worship. It was all supposed to look like Rome. The Philippians were a Rome away from Rome, and they were very proud of it. Paul says, our commonwealth is in heaven. That means our behaviors, our ethics, they don't look like the laws of the land. They look like obedience to the lifestyle of heaven. And sometimes there's a, a historical misunderstanding in reading this passage because we can read this and think, yeah, our home is in heaven. And we can get heavenly minded, you know the phrase heavenly minded and no earthly good. We can actually stop paying attention to the physical things, to our behaviors, to how we care for creation, to how we love our neighbors, to the little details of our life. We can be heavenly minded. And, and Paul's not only not talking about that, the Philippians wouldn't have understood that because they weren't citizens of Rome who were planning to go off and live in Rome someday. That would have been a nightmare for Caesar. He didn't need more people in the Roman capital. The point of making them a, a colony was the hope that Roman citizens would then infiltrate Philippi with the quality of life of Rome. So he's given us two challenges. We're to imitate the way of the cross so that we can infiltrate our little corner of the world, our jobs, our homes, our neighborhoods. I shared a professor with Pastor Ben. His name was Gordon Fee, and he said this. He says, God is not just saving individuals and preparing them for heaven. Rather, he's creating a people among whom he can live and who in their life together will reproduce God's life 
and character. That's a high calling. We're called to infiltrate our corners of the world with the very life and character of God. Scary because if we're honest, we don't really do that very well. If you think of the number one, what's the number one criticism of Christians? Hypocrites. We talk a good talk, but then we do other things. I remember a couple years ago, I had a tooth problem, and so I, I had to go quick to a dentist, and I went somewhere I hadn't gone before. So when he was coming in, he looked at my sheet, and he said, oh, you're a pastor, eh? Rallying all the hypocrites, he says. And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> and for the next about 20 minutes, while he's looking at my mouth, he, he proceeds to tell me about all the hypocrites in his life. And here I am stuck with this thing in my mouth. I can't even talk. You know, I can't even respond to him. And he's just, just ranting at me. And as he walked away, he said, well, good luck out there selling God. And he walks off. And I thought about that a lot of times because I thought to myself, wanted to defend myself. And then I thought, well, if he followed me around for a day, he'd see a lot of inconsistencies in my life too. Things he'd probably call hypocritical. Maybe they are. But then I thought, well, I think actually that's the point. Isn't that the point? That's why we wake up on a Sunday, even though it's Mother's Day, and we come in this church and we gather together because it's like a public declaration of saying, I'm broken and I cannot fix myself. And I worship a God who came for the sick ones, not the healthy ones. That's why we do this. That's why we come. It's what we're declaring in being here together. It's saying, we know we're not perfect. My life is often inconsistent, and I often don't model the character of, of Jesus. But here's what I would have hoped to have said to this man, but, but I'm not who I used to be. It's trajectory. My life is heading in a direction. I'm becoming more and more imprinted or to use Paul's word here, modeled after the life and behaviors of heaven, the way of the cross. We're called to, to reproduce the very character of God. So Paul tells us to find people to imitate so that we can infiltrate. And how do we do this? How are we supposed to live this life. We obviously can't do it ourselves. We're all here. We all know we're broken. And yet, interestingly, it's the next words out of Paul's mouth where he speaks to the ascension and he reminds us. He says, we eagerly await a savior from there. In other words, he's not here. Which doesn't sound very helpful. We need to live the life and character of God and our model is not here, he says. He's reminding us. He's not here. He's in heaven. And there's two reasons, I think, why he brings this in right here. The first is that the ascension does not just mean 
he raised Jesus from the dead. There's other people who are raised from the dead, and we don't worship them. But the ascension is recognizing his work is completed. And seated on the throne of heaven is a physical, human, flesh and blood, scarred-handed body, and he's reigning. Why is that so important? Paul says, because it's the guarantee that we too will be transformed, that our work is not in vain. It's the guarantee. He says, verse 21, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control and transform our lowly bodies so they will be like his glorious body. Let's read that again. The power to bring everything under his control. I think we should read that every day. Do we believe that? That means the things we face this week, the struggles we wrestle with, our physical weakness that we experience, we have a guarantee. That means when I'm anxious about all the things I cannot control, my kids, my job, our country, the peace in our world, we sit and we say, Jesus is on the throne. That's what we say. He's reigning. He's in control. And I, I wonder today, what are the things in our life that we need to submit to the ascended Lord and say, he reigns? We await, Paul says, a Savior who's already reigning. But there's more in it because when Paul speaks of Jesus being in heaven and that he's returning, it should remind our ears what Jesus said too. He said to his followers, he said, I'm going away. And I'll come again. But he says, it's better for you that I go so I can send you my spirit. The ascension opens the way for the filling of the Spirit. Better for me to go. So there can be human bodies, aging, wrinkly, overweight, stinky, physical flesh and blood, human bodies, wonderfully made, filled with the very life of God. Says it's available to us through the power of the Spirit. And to await his return means living in the life of the Spirit. That's, that's what it means. And, and, and it's the difference because sometimes I can read Paul's words. Maybe you're like this. I read Paul's words, I hear these, and I think it's a bunch of do's and don'ts. Oh, I'm supposed to find people to imitate. And yeah, I've been meaning to spend more time with so and so and better put that on the calendar. And Oh yeah, I have been giving in to my desires a lot and uh, better put that in check or, oh, I'm supposed to be infiltrating in my workplace and, oh, I'm already exhausted. We walk out the door and we've got a big list of the do's and don'ts that we're supposed to live by. And Paul says that's law. It doesn't work. To await the return of Christ is characterized by the filling and empowering of the Spirit. Megan's already talked about that this morning. 
The point is it's available. We celebrate in May that it's available, but it's not always accessed. And, And today, as I was thinking about the response in us, it's, it's not do's and don'ts. It's actually just a posture that says, fill us. Fill us by your spirit. It says, in this gathering of hypocrites, we say, God, we, we want to imitate your way of the cross. We can't do it this week. We need you to fill us. And maybe we have specific urges or passions that, that try to direct us a different way. Maybe you know what they are. And we just say, fill us, Lord. We cannot do it on our own. We want to imitate you. God, our call is too big for us alone. We cannot infiltrate our home, our kids, let alone our workplace and our community, our, our city of Red Deer. We need you to fill us by your spirit. And so today, as I as I close, I, I just invite you, whether you have something specific on your heart or just the week ahead, we await a Savior means we open our hands and we say, fill us. So I just invite you, just open out your hands before the Lord and let's just pray together. Father, we are grateful that we worship a Jesus who is reigning on the throne. That we have a guarantee that this life we live, that when we gather together, it's not in vain, it's not useless. Our hope is secure, and yet you ask us to live the life of heaven here today, and we need your power. And so thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you that as we have sung already today and spoken these words, Lord, you are present here Would you pour into us the desire to walk in the way of your cross? Would you fill us with your life today that we could actually be part of your commonwealth? Christ once filled by your spirit this week for your glory and your power, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.